Welcome to the RSP Quick Game. Kurt Russell. And I do have a move for Dr. Death. So There you go. Yeah, yes. There you go. And if you have not seen The Best of Times, it is a it is an excellent football movie. Go yeah. check it out. Underrated football movie. Robin Williams, Kurt Russell, um, a number of a number of well established stars from back in the day. Um yeah. so listen, we've got we've got a good show for you uh, on tap. Um just to begin. In in plug your shit fashion that I have on my little um, post-it note from my friend Christopher Brown, which is, listen, the Rookie Scouting Portfolio, it is available to you. Past issues are available to you for nine ninety five dollars apiece. Um, the, the current RSP is available for um, $21.95. Um, and I get told on a regular basis it's at wor- worth at least twice that much and has at least two to three times the length of value that that it offers for each year. Um, so you're going to find some of the most comprehensive analysis of skill prospects available to you, and a portion of the proceeds go to Darkness to Light, an organization devoted to preventing sexual abuse of children, as well as teaching people how to address it when it happens. And this involves civic groups, universities. They've worked with Penn State. Um, they've, I think they've worked with Michigan State at this point. I know Ali Rossman is a spokeswoman. Um, we've had some um, Heath. Um, who's, the, who's the former fullback for the Saints who was on NFL Network? Um, Merrill Hodge? No, Heath. Um, Heath Evans. Yeah, Heath Evans was yeah. a spokesperson way back in the day at one point. Um, you know, and I know that Derek Mason's doing good work on this. He's a guy who's actually come out and talked about his abuse that he's had, that he that he suffered, and he's he's working on behalf of an organization to you know raise awareness. This is a great organization, so I highly recommend it. And it's something that the RSP has been giving back to since um, the Penn State scandal, and will continue to do so. So anyway, you can get that at mattwaldman.com. And get that right away, or you can find out more about it either there or at mattwaldmanrsp.com. All right, let's get started. So, are we seeing more gap runs than we have in the recent past? Because I'm turned on the TV over the past month, and I've always talked about how you know, watching a guard or tackle or center pull, you know, on plays like gap, uh, plays like power and counter and trap, or even toss plays. Toss plays are common in the NFL, but I feel like I'm seeing more power in from teams and on a regular basis than I used to. Am I am I is it just the games I'm watching or do you think there's something more than anecdotal here? Are you noticing the same thing? And if you agree, why why do you think this might be happening? Yeah, I mean, I haven't looked at the numbers, but I agree that at least on an anecdotal level, watching the league each week, you're seeing more gap stuff, you're seeing more power stuff. And I think part of it is a response to the like tight three down tight fronts we're seeing to the too high safety stuff we're seeing. You know, as teams on the defensive side of the football are basically daring you to run. I mean, that's kind of what they're daring you to do. You're seeing you know, all, all the talk in recent weeks about how teams are defending the Chiefs with the two-eye safety look. You see teams do that against Buffalo, basically, again, daring you to run the football. And I reiterate, as I do all the time, I'm writing the piece about the Atlanta offense right now. Nothing we see is really new. Like, it, it was either done in the NFL years ago or it's been di- 
happening on Friday and Saturday night lights, and it's now working its way up. Um, you talk to high school defensive coordinators, Chris Bass, Kyle Kogan, Cody Alexander, they'll tell you for years at the high school level, they're running these two high looks. They're, they're running with tight fronts and stuff like that to dare you to run because they'd rather high school quarterbacks hand it off than throw, which for me, when I was playing, that's unheard of. But, yeah. but that's the way the game is involved. And now we're seeing that in the NFL. These two high looks, these these tight fronts, again, somebody head up on the nose, the two four-eye techniques. You know, you're basically trying to condense things on the interior, push things to the boundary where now you have, you know, numbers advantages. The response to that is to run gap, run gap stuff up front because the goal of gap designs is to get two doubles, get as many double teams as you can. And now when you're just running against three linemen, you know, you can get north and south quickly with doubles as opposed to trying to bang your head on outside zone, wide zone, where you're playing into what they want. Defenses want to see stuff spill to the outside and then flow to it with the athletes they have on that side of the football. You know, they're getting lighter, faster, quicker on the defensive side of the ball. So I think this is the the sort of response to the counter, to the response, the like ebb and flow of offensive and defensive scheme adjustments, which is they're going to show – the light boxes and the tight fronts run gap against them. Exactly, because when you run gap and you can get to the second level, because when you can get those double teams and you can come off on the second level onto a linebacker and push them backwards, look at the Ravens' front. The Ravens have they have a couple, you know, they've got Calais Campbell, who's an old-school big dude. But other than that, I mean, Justin Matabuike is kind of a smaller under-tackle type, you know, in terms of, like, he's a... He's quick. He's more of a pass rusher, penetrator, um, but he's he doesn't have a lot of sand in his pants for a defensive tackle. Patrick Queen, they just moved to weak side linebacker, um, and that's probably where he's best because he can move sideline to sideline and just kind of chase and, and, and get to his spot. But they don't have the linebackers they used to have, and the game's changed since they were an, a dominant defense. And watching them just get mowed over a couple of weeks ago by the Bengals, yep. you know, and that wasn't even a gap play that I'm thinking about, which was like the Samaj P. Ryan run. But the fact that we're seeing like James Conner and, and behind the, the Cardinals front, you know, run gap on, on plays over and over again. And for him to like have the day that he had last week, I mean, it was the best, day for a running back from a if you're looking from a fantasy points perspective which i think is not a bad way of judging the statistical day of a of right. a player these days you know on on skill positions it, that get, that tells you a lot and it just seems like more and more i'm noticing that rather than saying well teams can't run gap that mu as much in the nfl not starting to see because of the way you described it. It's yeah, and I, I also think, look, we're also seeing a lot of duo, which plays out similar to, to to gap or power. A lot of people say duo is just power without the pullers. And what you get with duo is it messes so much with the linebackers because the, the way that sort of plays out from a run fit perspective, you've got to figure out on the fly, like which hole you've got to fit into. And then it builds, of course, off of that play action off of duo looks. Tampa Bay has done that really well. Nate Tice, who does really good work for The Athletic and a couple of other outlets, has talked about how duo really plays with what the linebackers have to read out, puts them in an almost impossible position. So that's another reason why, why, why we're seeing just whether it's pure gap power or duo power without the pullers, teams are using that more than, say, even three, two years ago when everything seemed to be inside zone, outside zone, wide zone based. Yeah, I just laugh when I watch a Cleveland Browns running power with Nick Chubb. I mean, to me, that's like 
I that's something that if you are a fan of running back play, you would want to see happening. Right. And now that it's starting to happen because of the way defenses played, it's just like, are you kidding me? That's just like a lethal combination. And duo, I mean, as John Ledyard has pointed out on this on the show in the past, is that it is a it naturally leads to a lot of tight creases. Um, yeah. Be, so as a running back, from that perspective, you need a running back who is very good at aggressively hitting spots and reading their leverage well and they know that creases will open as they get into it or they will make as much of the crease as they can rather than trying to find running to space. They're running yep. to leverage as opposed to running to space. And that's what good running backs do oftentimes yep. on those plays. So let's get down to it here. I saw a couple people on Twitter. One was was Jay Moyer, who's you know an alum of this of of this the RSP site. And you know, we're not we're not bound to agree with each other and stay the party line with everything, but he was talking about what other people were, which was Brian Burns basically talked about, or was um, Hassan Reddick who basically yeah. got onto the um, podium in the post game um, press conference and said, Mac Jones handling a Brian Burns was among the dirtiest plays he's ever seen. And they showed the video. So I watched the video Looks like he threw the ball under pressure. He got knocked down, um, and it looked like either a fumble or interception. I couldn't. I don't remember that that detail, but I do remember him grabbing the leg and ankle of the player and turning it. Now, what I saw, and I'm not saying that was the definitive viewpoint, but from what I saw, it looked like he was just trying to tackle the guy, which again was a penalty. <laughs> there was nothing absolutely was yeah. a penalty, but I didn't think of it as let me try and cripple the guy. I thought it was more let me try and just get this guy on the ground so that and and one reader even said I think he I wonder if he thought he had the ball. I don't think I can go that far, but I certainly can I don't see like I think the intent was a little bit of editorializing whereas it was clearly just a foul to me. What about you? Yeah, I'm going to first remind everybody, I have a Patriots banner over my shoulder, okay? <laughs> so I am a Patriots fan. And, you know, each week for Pat's Paul, what I do, Mac Attack, where I break down Mac Jones for on, on YouTube. And the comments this week have been nothing but that play for the most part. I think a couple of things happened. He gets hit from behind. It's a strip sack kind of situation. And his initial reaction to the moment, which I, I think I'll accept from him, was I thought he might have had the ball. And so he's trying to prevent the strip sack fumble because he doesn't know how it's playing out initially. So he grabs the ankle and yeah, like you said, he could probably throw a flag for that. Where I start to deviate from the, it was just a football play at the moment to the, okay, the, the league's going to come down on him here is there's an end. There's a, like a field level angle of it from the side. Um, one Panthers place, John Ellis, who's a, a Panthers guy tweeted out a clip of it where you could see after Jones grabs the ankle and starts to like get up and see what's going on. At that point, you could probably think he could see that Burns doesn't have the football. You get sort of a leg whip and roll from Jones where he like whips his right leg into Burns' lower legs and then sort of rolls over. That to me was a little bit much. Okay. Like I think in, initially he thought, look, he might have the football. I got to prevent a, a strip sack fumble touchdown. I'm a quarterback against one of the league's most athletic and powerful like pass rushers. If I got to hold on to his toes for dear life to prevent it, that's what I'm going to do. 
But then I think there was a moment where he probably could have seen, okay, well, he doesn't have the ball, but then he hits him with a sort of leg whipping thing. I, I think, like, I don't think he's going to get suspended. But if, as I was talking to the, the parents at the bus stop this morning, because I got asked about it, his wallet's probably going to be like five and, digits lighter come Thursday morning. Yeah, yeah, I think that makes total sense. And and I didn't see that angle, so I appreciate yeah. you being able to share I, how that was. I mean, I mean, like like some people went down the road and said, look, there was a moment when these two played in high school where like Burns celebrated a sack. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't think this was premeditated. Like I, like, I don't think Matt Jones approached this game as like, man, I'm going to cough one up. I'm going to get him back for that. Like, I don't think it was like a premeditated thing or anything like that. But I do think the league's – because, I mean, the other thing is, like, we are in the player safety age, right? Yeah. Like, and it should work both ways. Like, if an offensive player does totally. something like this, like, we, we can't have quarterbacks, like, twisting ankles and, like, trying to hurt knees and things like that. Again, not saying Mac Jones was doing that. I'm just more big picture-wise, like – we got to protect everybody, not just the quarterbacks. Yeah, and I I totally agree with that. And Reddick said that very well on his yeah. his uh, post media press conference yeah, I so. as well. Yeah. All right. So and then you know we'll go back to the whole testing the patience of quarterbacks in the first question. One point I did want to bring up is most of these quarterbacks are under thirty years of age, and if you and once you've gotten like a decade past thirty, you realize how impatient you you used to be between yeah, well, the ages of twenty to thirty. You know, so if you don't think that these guys' patients are tested, especially when they're charged with, you know, being there, you know, it's this mixed message. Don't be a hero, but when we need you to be a hero, be a hero be and a hero. know the difference between the yeah. two. And that's a hard thing to be able to do. So, of course, these guys' patients are going to get tested. Um, so, speaking of guys whose patients were tested over the age of 30, um, Matthew Stafford had his patience tested a bit by the Tennessee <coughs> Titans, who also played a lot of two high looks, got a lot of good underneath coverage on teams that like to throw the ball downfield with their longer developing routes. So they were doing a great job covering the short angle and getting pressure with three to four defenders. And they just whipped the heck out of the Rams in the first half of that game and then sustained that lead. And they even were able to do some bait and switch on Matthew Stafford to throw, to get him into a, a quick, a pick six on a quick game, basically quick game throw where safety, you know, they, they, they sugared a, a gap with a linebacker early, just well late pre-snap. And, and that drew Stafford's attention away to the safety on the right side of the field, creeping up into the flat. Yeah. And so when Stafford went to throw the quick out, something he hadn't done all game, you know, it was cut off and picked off for the, for the score. And that was, that might've been the dagger in that game yeah. when we look back on it. So I'm just curious, are there any teams that the Rams will face either during the regular season or potentially the playoffs who can even replicate what the Titans did defensively? I mean, that's, <laughs> It's tough because Tennessee might have one of the best front fours in the game right now. Like Harold Landry's playing well. Autry's playing well. Simmons is playing well. Like they can get after you with four. And that's sort of the undercurrent to this too high idea, which is, you know, when they drop the throw, can you get pressure with four? Can you get pressure with three? And they've got the ability, Tennessee does, to do that. Looking at their schedule, a team that kind of comes to mind, Arizona. Yes. I mean, he, I know J.J. Watt is down, but look, Chandler Jones, Zach Allen, you know, they've got Marcus Golden, who has been playing extremely <laughs> well off the edge. 
you know, you can get pressure with the guys up front, and then you start talking about the underneath zones. Well, they got two young linebackers, hybrid type players, Zayvon Collins and Isaiah Simmons. You know, the, sort of these matchup nightmare type guys on the defensive side of the ball. They're athletic. They're big. They're long. They can sort of get into underneath throwing lanes if you're trying to get rid of the ball quickly. And so Arizona might be the one team on their regular season schedule looking at it that I think could fit that bill. If you start thinking postseason, maybe Tampa Bay. I mean, what we're seeing teams do to the Chiefs, maybe it has its roots in that Super Bowl where they were able to get pressure with four, you know, drop seven into coverage, you know, sets maybe the blueprint template, although I, I, I hate those phrases because football is more complex than that, but set the pathway for other teams to now follow. Maybe it's Tampa Bay, should those two teams meet in the postseason, that can do that. Yeah, I don't really have much to add to that. I think that it is – Arizona was the team that was on my list for sure. Yeah. And I just think that the Titans have such a um, – they're on the, the high end of defenses in terms of performance with to that, to that type of schematic strategy. So, yeah, I think that the Rams have to look at this as kind of more of a one-off deal other than the, the Cardinals. And it only takes one team to knock you out of the playoffs. So yeah. they're going to have, you know, the most obvious statement that we'll have of the day. So, right. you know, we'll, uh, you know, so that would be the team they've got to watch out for, for sure. So how are you feeling about uh, Justin Fields after last night or the past few weeks? After these past two weeks, I feel pretty good. I mean, I feel pretty good about Fields generally. I I'm still not ready to say, look, Matt Nagy's the guy. I'm, I'm, I'm going to make my first of, I think, what will be many cases for Pep Hamilton as the offensive coordinator for the Bears next year, if not the head coach. I mean, I look at Pep was part of the triumvirate with Anthony Lynn and, and Shane Steichen that helped Justin Herbert last year. And I look at what <laughs> Herbert did last year, throwing against leverage, attacking downfield. I look at what Fields did, particularly last night against the Steelers. Intended air yards of, I think, 15.6 last week, which was first in the league by a long shot. It wasn't like he was taking check downs, man. He was pushing the ball downfield into some ridiculous windows. Um, I, I was very, shall we say, you know, excited, impressed, heartened to see that performance from Fields these, these past two weeks. You know, the throw to Graham up the left seam, the throw yes. to Matt rolling left. And I love, look, the throw to Robinson on the slot yes. fade late. Seeing that safety come down third and two. He's coming down to take away everything because he's expecting something short. All right, it's third and two. You need the first down, but I don't care. I'm throwing deep. This is the look I got. That's the kind of like a, like understandably aggressively made decisions, right? Like it's an appropriate aggression read in that moment. Because uh, you could get, if you miss that, you got fourth and two. You can get the fourth down some other way. They did that earlier with a design zone read run play. I love that decision for him. So, you know, is he there? No. Like, is he, has he gotten to where he needs to be? No. Do I have more confidence now that I did say four weeks ago that he will get there? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm with you. I think he is too. And I think that the Bears staff has done just enough um, for him to be able to show what he can do and he's continued yeah. to work at the game that throw to Mooney was another one yeah. that's moving to his left like the yeah. one he had against San Francisco we know he can do that he's shown that he can replicate those types of plays and they're beautiful to watch and you know he's getting to run a little bit more um which is great to see yeah, and now that he's kind of I think and I I think there's something to be said 
for a young player who has that ability to run and throw that if you hem him up in one part of his game when he's young, he probably feels emotionally hemmed up in terms of that something's off with his with playing. And it yeah. probably affects him in other ways too. I think you've got to feel like that you've got the reins off in all aspects of your game to play your best game. And I think that that's, that's part of what's helping him too. So did we write off Ben Roethlisberger too soon? Maybe. I'm 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 still not convinced yet. I mean, because I remember these these conversations this time last year. Like, oh, you know, they they haven't lost yet. They look really good. They're letting them push the ball downfield. They've got a lot of three by one stuff where they're letting them read a concept. If he likes it, throw the concept. If not, come back through the vert or the backside dig or whatever. And then we saw it fall off a cliff. And then we saw it fall off a cliff as October became November became December. I want to see it in November, late November, early December. Like, like that's what I want to see with Roethlisberger because there are understandably some questions about him from an arm's length standpoint. Like he, he he's not the guy from a velocity standpoint that he was when he was in his twenties, you know, late twenties, early thirties. Can that arm hold up? Can he make the throws he might need to make to win a game in Baltimore in December or to win a game in Cleveland in late November? Like, like that's what I want to see. And so, I mean, maybe, maybe we eventually come first of the year think, yeah, we were way too early to you know bury this guy, but I'm not convinced yet. And I would agree with that because most quarterbacks, as you know very well, their arms get um, rubbery by December, and and when that or in happens, my case, September, but okay, yeah, okay, well, sure. sure. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's not it's not a Mark Schofield Matt Wallman podcast if I'm not taking a shot at myself. Hey, That's see, just the there, way this works. There you go. I'm still every time I see Ben Roethlisberger, I think I still think a Will Ferrell movie with Will Ferrell playing Ben. But now I've uh, ele- elevated it to, or it's evolved to. I won't say is is to um, Tony Romo playing being played by Paul Rudd. And, oh, I like that. And so we could have like a movie where it doesn't even have to be like them trying to play football because we know that would just be silly, but we could have them maybe participating in like a skills contest or a flag football event or something silly, but like actually have a good plot around basically maybe Tony Romo egging being I in the broadcast booth, egging on the, the Paul, the Ben I Roethlisberger. I think like Ocean's character. 14 where you have some heist around, like, say, the Super Bowl, and there's obviously a scene where you've got, like, a quarterback skills competition of retired players, and somehow you've got to, like, steal, like, a Rolex watch from, like, Tony Romo's gym bag or something. See, there you go. There, Yeah, there you go. I I get it. All right, so what are some factors you use to evaluate the context of plays um, that you see when you're studying quarterbacks? You know, I did – I had a checklist of items I shared for running backs last night when I did um, looked at the the Titans backfield because yeah. you know I saw a lot of stuff where like you know I heard you know it's one thing to me that fans and fantasy media might look at at something and and just see the superficial which is the box score um, runs into open space you know things like that and go oh he looked better you know. I understand that, but when former football players and media analysts do it, it's kind of um, disconcerting to me a little bit, you know. And and certainly, teams may see something like, well, they like speed, like the case of Elijah Mitchell. They like speed yeah. a lot, so they're going to roll with that 
that trump card over a player who might actually have more all-around skills in a guy like Trey, Trey um, Sermon. So, you know, one of the things that I look for, I'm going to give you 12 points that I look for with running backs. And you don't need to, you know, obviously I had prepared these questions on, you know, I'm, I just happen to have written, written these things down in there. And a lot of them might be things in common. But for me, it's like, this is like scouting 101. What's the down and distance of the play? You know, you need to understand that because is it a is it a down that most defenses are going to expect run, or is it a down where down in distance where defenses are like we're expecting pass? What's the score of the game? Is it a tight game? Is it a blowout? You know, are the is the defense worried about you know giving up a even a small gain in this moment, or are they more focused on we let them run up and down the field and waste clock? You know, how much time is left in the game within down and distance in the score? What's the field position? If you're backed up at your own seven and it's, you know, late in the game, late in the half and you're playing nickel, then you're expecting the throw and you're inviting them to run now, you know, and, and do those types of things. How's the deep? So that bleeds into how's the defense playing the offense? How does it tie into all those things? Did the runner have a clean path to the exchange point at the line of scrimmage? Did they have an immediate open crease or did they have to manipulate defenders to set up blocks? And did they have to break tackles or make opponents miss? Um, another one is, was the first point of, when was the first point of contact in the play for the runner? What kind of tackle attempt did they make? You know, somebody, as I've talked about in the past, someone slapping Saquon Barkley on the thigh pad as he runs for 75 yards that should not count as yards after contact right. in the same manner with the same context as Nick Chubb, you know, running over a defensive tackle who's squared up against him and delivers a hit to his hips and then carrying two linebackers another seven yards. You know, that one may have had a 75-yard gain, but yards after contact, the seven-yard gain was much more um, difficult scenario and a much more meaningful scenario for yards after contact. Um, who's the and like I, as I earlier mentioned the position of the opponent you know is it is it a cornerback trying to wrap or is it a defensive tackle trying to wrap um, you know did the back display good judgment relative to the game script and the play design are they running the gap play correctly are they setting up a zone play correctly do they understand the keys that they're supposed to be reading and did they and you know all those things I mentioned are just 12 points you could look at more but I think if people just even had like basic criteria that they understood what to look for, even if it wasn't a you know J.W. Pritchard checklist on how to look at running back play in the way that J.W. Pritchard looked at poetry, you know, back at uh, you know, you know, back in the day, we mentioned you know two two Robin Williams movies here today. Yeah. Um, but uh, the the thing is, is that. If you do that, I think that we would see an elevated level of analysis um, when we look at the game. And I'm just curious, as someone who obviously does such a great job studying quarterbacks, what are some of the things that you look at? You know, they can, I'm sure some of them overlap, but yeah. what are specific to quarterbacks? Yeah, and and, and some of the, the stuff that I sort of look at is stuff I learned over at the Scouting Academy with Dan Hammond. Um, sort of the like player specific traits, the general traits for scouting football players. And, and I sort of kind of use that to guide me, but I'll kind of work big to small here, big picture. I want to start with like the games that I want to watch, like 
and you know have your process whatever you want it to be but when it comes to scouting the quarterback i want to make sure i watch a home game and an away game you know i want to see what they're like in front of the home crowd i want to see what they're like on the road can they handle noise can they handle those external factors can they handle things when you know you're so used to play clock being here when you're playing at home now it's up here now it's elsewhere like like the, the th- things big and small that go into playing on the road i want to see games against good competition like are you going to stand out and raise your level of play I want to see games against bad competition. Like, just because you're expected to win, do you do things differently? Or do you see go out there and do the same thing? Like, go about your business the same way? Do you take care of the day? Do you take care of business against, you know, lower level competition? And I do want to see a weather game. Like, I don't get so involved in, say, hand-sized Twitter or things like that. But if it's a rainy day and you can't grip the football, like, that's something I want to know. If it's, like... One of the games that gave me the most pause with, when it came to Brett Rippon and hand size and weather seemed to be an issue with him was their game against, I think it was Fresno State, his final season. It was the conference championship game, and it was snowy. It was wet. It was at home at Boise, and they didn't trust him to throw. They tried to really just run the football, and that was one of those moments where I was like, this could be a problem for him. And so I want to see a sort of a weather game. Then we sort of get to pre-snap situational things to think about. I pay a focus to place an emphasis on third quarter, fourth quarter, third down, fourth down, red zone. Like, like how do you handle those money down situations? Like, you know, I remember, you know, there's a different discussion to be had about Deshaun Watson right now. But when he was at Clemson, you could dig up the old tweets. Like, he was so good in those situations. Like, when it mattered, he was there. So I want to pay attention to those. Um, obviously the context down distance situation score, things like that. Like if you're shredding teams, but you're constantly only doing it when you're down 35, nothing, what am I supposed to do with that? Like, yeah. you know, but if you're doing it, you know, big moments and small moments, like that's important. Pre-snap, you know, are they active at the line of scrimmage or not? Are they being asked to do things at the line of scrimmage or are they just turning to the sideline? looking at the pictures of the poop emojis and then going from there. Like, <laughs> like if you're asked to do stuff with a lot of scrimmage, like I think it matters. Now, obviously most college quarterbacks right now, they're doing this and, and like, I get it, but are there moments when you could see them doing some Carson Strawn has some examples where you could see him doing some stuff pre-snap, you know, some other quarterbacks are doing that as well. I think that's important. Are they seeing and picking up on coverage indicators, right? If every cornerback and safety is looking at you, you have a pretty good idea it might be zone coverage. Or if nobody's looking at you, you got a pretty good idea it might be man coverage. Are they reading that stuff out? Are they noticing stuff out? Now, I used to be a lot more dogmatic with this. Like, I would literally, for every player, write down left CB eyes on quarterback. And I, I would go through each. Now it's it's much less so, and I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. But I want, I want to see that stuff in the pre-snap phase. And then post-snap, look. Do you see some NFL throws? Do you see some middle of the field throws? Are they layered in throws? Are they attacking tight windows? Is everything outside the numbers or are there there coaches letting them attack between the numbers, between the hash marks? Are they reading coverage? Tell people what a layered in throw is in case they don't know. Dig route behind the linebackers in front of the safeties. Like that's an example of one, right? Where you've got to adjust trajectory and placement and velocity to get it over one defender, but in front of a next level of defenders layer throw could be a shallow crosser, right? You've got to get it over the lineman in front of you, but drop it in front of the linebackers, like layer it in that throw. And I know it's football, dumb football guy term. I saw some people making fun of it today, but it, it, it sort of matters. No, it's right? perfect. 
like if you can't figure out how to put in a throw to that area of the field adjusting for linebackers and safeties or linemen and linebackers you're not going to be able to do it right away in the nfl and that gets us to if everything is outside the numbers teams can figure out how to take that away and so that's sort of the idea of layering and throws um reading rotations right like like if you see too high and it's suddenly one high do you have vapor lock do you just melt down like a wesleyan kid in the 90s or do you read it outright and so i want to see that uh ball placement shallow to deep right and, and i know you've talked about this and, and it's so right like if you put the throw to the wrong hip 60 yards downfield i don't care yeah. like just get it there but if you put the ball to the wrong hip at a three-yard hitch it matters because yeah. that's the difference between a three-yard hitch being a 10-yard gain or a three-yard hitch being a three-yard gain. Like So ball placement, short to deep, I pay attention to that. Pocket management, obviously, but I also want to see, can you make throws with trash at your feet? Can you make throws when you can't step into it? Do you have enough velocity where if you're trying to hit that dig route but you can't step into it, can you still throw it and hit it? Like I want to see that. Can you create space subtly? with your feet in the pocket or is it just a wild escape situation all the time with you eyes are they active or are they static are you scanning the field working through reads moving people with your eyes or are you just i know i'm gonna i'm gonna throw the hitch my eyes go to the hitch my eyes no never go anywhere else like i, I want to see that are they where they should be are the eyes tied to the feet right joe burrow is a great example of this when he was at lsu always had his feet and his eyes working in sync even Gardner Minshew at times when he was working full field. Like, I know he had other footwork issues that we talked about, but left, middle, right, middle, left, feet and eyes were always in sync. I, I like to see that. Uh, mechanics, look, are you getting the ball where it needs to be when it needs to be there? Good. If not, is it a mechanical issue? Like, that's what I watch for there. And then sort of the big picture stuff, um, athleticism. Like, are you functionally athletic enough to survive in the NFL? Like, we'll have the Carson Strong debates at some point. I know that's going to be an issue with some people. It's going to be a functional athleticism thing. You don't have to be Kyler Murray, but you can't be Dwayne Haskins in today's NFL. Like, I don't think you can be Eli Manning in today's NFL where you're just a battleship back there and you can't move. you got to be able to at least extend a little bit. Um, and finally, and this was sort of a, a Justin Herbert thing that I've sort of evaluated, changed how I do it a little bit or adjusted it. Can you just throw against leverage? Like I said, I used to be so dogmatic. Like, you need to be able to tell me stubby versus stump. You need to be able to tell me cover two, cover three, cover one, cover four, whatever. Now it's just, can you see the nearest defender and put the football away from him? If you could do that, you can fill out the knowledge base a little bit down the road. Like, can you figure out the where the nearest threat is and put the football away from that guy? Yeah, love it. That was fantastic, and I think a lot of people will – We'll find a value from that. At least, at least this crazy fan base that we have. Yeah, this crazy fan base. Will like it. Yeah, and that's that's all that matters to me at this point is 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 the folks who filter in here and hang around. So, um, you know, with that in mind, I had another discussion uh, offline with, um, I'll just say, a former <laughs> defensive back um, at the Division One level who I would uh, this um, describe as maybe. 
a, a version of NFL Deep Throat for me. Um, you know, oh so I asked him about wide receiver freelancing because last week we had Odell Beckham yep. and there was talk about how he did too much freelancing. And then we, and then he got compared to T.O. because T.O. did too much freelancing. And Chad Johnson at one point did too much freelancing. And Carson, there was this whole blow up with Carson Palmer and the, and the Bengals and examples of that. So I asked this former DB, I said, tell me about freelancing. When is it good? When's it bad? Can it be good but seen as bad if the quarterback isn't good at adjusting? Or is it always predicated on the quarterback? And and his mention was, well, the only times I've seen it directly was when you're dealing with a master of the system. Peyton Manning's the gold standard there. Brady was similar in New England, but I think he did it less. Um, he did less of this than people would have thought. And he says it's definitely a chemistry thing. Aaron Rodgers developed it with a number of guys in Green Bay as well when you saw him using that back shoulder throw at will before it was popular. That was a great example of wide receivers going with what they're given. Um, he said, but also... It, I seem to have, you know, so, you know, talking about that, he, you know, that's, that was kind of the thought from his perspective. And so it made me think, um, you know, but the, uh, you know, looking at it overall, I look <coughs> at say like, I could see where Odell Beckham is expecting a higher level of play from Baker Mayfield and didn't get it. And, but I could also see how a player like that will get impatient and maybe press the issue even more when it's not happening and thinking that they're going to create some sort of kerfluffle maybe to, you know, to, yeah. to get, to get what they want and then find out that they're not going to get what they want because they don't understand that the politics isn't going to work that way. And that's not how you play team football. And so I'm just curious as a former quarterback, what your thoughts on that or comment on anything that I, that, that I mentioned here. I mean, I think the way I could sort of think work through this is as a bad quarterback, I needed you to be where I expected you to be because I was not going to be able to react to time and read out what you were thinking and doing. And, and so from that perspective, you know, I understand, look, if I'm, if a quarterback's expecting you to run a post route at say th 13 yards breaking, you know, and he decides, look, because of the leverage, because of the safety plan over the top, I'm turning this post into a corner just because, look, that's where I got to go to get open. I'm not going to be able to hit that. But better quarterbacks will and other quarterbacks will. And the other thing I think to, that's important to sort of keep in mind is, you know, generally speaking, and then this Odell situation, generally speaking, so many routes have conversions built in that, like, you as a quarterback have to be able to – adjust to what that guy is going to do because you might read it out as say, Oh, you know, you've got a middle of the field open situation. You're going to run the post. You're going to run that safety splitter, but it's a Tampa two in that receiver sees that guy get in depth and says, you know what? I'm not going to run straight into that guy. I'm going to stay vertical, work more up the hash here. And you've got to like throw me open, you know? So as a quarterback in today's sort of game, I think you've got to have the ability to adjust a bit more on the fly because so many route conversions that are built in, I think the thing also to remember with this Odell situation is a lot of people want to say, oh, it was the quarterback or, oh, it was Odell and he's freelancing. Kevin Stefanski isn't sort of blameless here. Like Seth Galita did a really good job with a video breakdown of talking about how they were – and Doug Ferraro also wrote about this as well. He did a really good job writing it. They were using Odell on some vertical stuff, sometimes just as a decoy. 
and then the backside dig guy. Well, that's a very expensive decoy to yes. have in your offense, number one. Number two, as Seth pointed out in the video that he did, Baker's reading a lot of stuff front side and not coming backside right now at all. Yeah. Like his eyes are staying front side of the three receiver concept. And so a lot of times Odell's coming over and he's open on the backside dig, but Baker's eyes aren't getting there in time. And so, you know, that, that video that was done. Yeah. There are certainly some times where Odell's wide open, but he's not in the progression, but he's the backside dig guy. And if you've got three over five, you don't have the numbers advantage front side. You're going to get your eyes backside to hit that dig, And that's on Baker to do. And as Seth walked us through, he wasn't quite doing it. And so, it's not a clean, oh, this is all Adele's fault. It's not a clean, this is all Baker's fault. Stefanski's got some some fault here as well for, okay, if your best receiver is your backside dig guy and your, your vertical threat decoy guy and the quarterback's not taking advantage of it, get him in the concept. Yeah. Like, okay, don't run him on digs. Run him on the spot. Run him on some slants. And there were times when he did that, and then Baker didn't make throws. And so Or Odell dropped it. Or Odell, he had the drop on fourth down against yeah. the Chargers. And so – there's a lot of blame to go around this entire Cleveland situation. Now, I think Baker's performance Saturday, uh, Sunday, like, you know, m- maybe gives you some idea that, okay, without Odell, like, they can run this sort of ball control passing game offense, throwing downfield out of 13 personnel and stuff and be effective. But I also think Odell might find a home where he's going to thrive. I think he will. I, yeah. I, I would not be at all shocked. I mean, I'm not connected in any of this, and I'm just giving a – a, a guesstimation here, but I would love to see him Green Bay. Imagine yeah. him opposite Devontae Adams with Aaron Rodgers whenever he comes back. Yeah. Um, you know, I they've been looking for that second option, and you could put Odell at flanker. You could put you know yeah. Adams at split, keep him at split end, or switch it however you want. And that would be that'd be a game changer for that offense. Um, Absolutely. Even though they like to run the ball as much too. You have a quarterback who actually isn't going to have a problem finding the backside player. So, yeah. all right. If Chase, if Jamar Chase, and and Pitts, Kyle Pitts weren't in this draft, who would be your top three rookies in this class, just based on their performance thus far? Yeah, I mean, I think the first one is Rashawn Slater, um, the the left tackle for the Chargers, who has looked absolutely fantastic since since coming into the league. I mean. You watch him. I think he's given up like maybe one or two sacks. Like, and, and sacks don't obviously tell the whole story. He's given up minimal pressures. Like, he's been effective both as a run blocker and a pass blocker. He's been just. I mean, I know there were some hesitations about the sort of COVID opt out year, but then look, you go back and you watch his game against Chase Young, and you should see. Okay, well, this guy can certainly play. Like, and, and so I think he's been somebody that's been extremely impressive. Christian Barmore. I mean. You know, I, I, I know Jim Nagy sort of tweeted out recently about, you know, there were some, you know, maturity questions about Christian Barmore, apparently. It was a thin position group, a very thin p- position group to begin with, a defensive line. Um, a lot of people thought, you know, they weren't going to draft – the league wasn't going to draft any of these guys in the first round. I kept saying, Patriots are going to find Barmore. And it wouldn't surprise me if they drafted him at 15, if the board fell that way. They traded up to get him in the, in the first round. And Bill Belichick, I mean, in the second round, excuse me, and Bill Belichick is rarely effusive when it comes to praising rookies. He's not really holding back when it comes to praising Barmore. And, and you can see the impact he's at up front. And the one, other one I'll mention is Micah Parsons. 
I mean, D Dallas has done some different things with him. They've needed to do some different things with him. Lawrence goes down. They've had some injuries on the edge, so they drop him down to the edge. They've let him play off ball. You know, I know people sort of made some jokes about a, a play he had in the season opener against Tampa Bay when it looked like, I say looked like, he was running around with his head cut off. He was executing robot technique. You know, you see run action, you come downhill. If it's a run-up fake, you get back and you look for crossers. He was doing it. It's just, you know, people were making their jokes and their memes on the first NFL game of the season. But Parsons has been very impressive to me, very explosive at near contact, like really good short area quickness for an off-ball linebacker. I know we're in the era of, you know, running backs and off-ball linebackers don't matter, but you can play him on the edge. He can be disruptive in the pass game. He can attack the pocket, attack the opposing passer. I've been impressed with him. I love all those mentions, and certainly if I were just going to make a definitive top three, I would probably put Slater in there for sure. You, yeah. you know, I'd understand the other picks that you have as well. I'll go a little bit of a different direction. Um, I I think although his statistics may not be as strong as what they will be down the line, Najee Harris has looked every bit of yeah. a top prospect at the running back position that you would expect. Um, you know, he create he's very creative. He's efficient with and dynamic at the same time. He obviously is catching the ball extremely well, and he's getting what he can out of this offensive line. Um, so I'm I've been impressed with what I've seen from him. Um, you know, Greg Newsom with the Browns cornerback is a yeah. difficult position. Even slot corner has its difficulties, even if you're kind of protected a little bit. In some ways, you're also exposed in others, and so for Newsom to play as well as he has. Um, in Cleveland, he's done pretty good in coverage. He's been a, a, a decent tackler. Um, I've been impressed with his ability to to just hang in there week in and week out. Um, and then I'm going to have to note Pat Fryermuth, you know. And I think Pat Fryermuth <laughs> yeah. was probably the easiest prospect to grade of the tight ends where you could just go, Kyle Pitts is the unicorn. He's the guy that's basically going to be getting into a contract situation with the Falcons at the end of his rookie deal where it's like Jeremy um, or Jimmy Graham. Am I a wide receiver or am I a tight end? You could see yeah. that coming. And he's yeah. really a wide receiver. So, yeah. um, But Pat Fryermuth is a true tight end, such a good blocker. And he's getting there as a blocker. That's the toughest adjustment, uh, if you ask me. Oh, yeah. And he's he was the best blocker of this class. And while he's not going to be able to handle Jadavion Clowney in the ground game, which very few people are, even if you're bigger than a tight end, what he did you know, last week uh, in Cleveland against um, Ronnie Harrison, who can cover guys like Travis Kelsey <coughs> yeah. for a game winner, and then what he did last night, you know, he, this yeah. is a th this guy is the real deal. I yep. think he's. I think he might be one of the best three rookies of of this class for sure. That's a good call. Yeah, That's a really good call. So, yeah, I I told you where I'd like to see Odell land. Where would you like to see Odell land? <sighs> I mean, from a roster need standpoint, New Orleans makes a lot of sense. I mean, they're so thin at receiver right now. And, you know, you add a player of his caliber, you know, to that offense that obviously, look, you're, you're working through Trevor Simeon now, you know, maybe Taysom Hill at some point. Like, having that kind of threat would certainly help. Um, I know a lot of people have said New England. I know a lot of people have said that. And I think there are reasons why it would certainly work. You know, you look at 
we've talked about, you know, maybe they could use a true wide receiver one type because Aguilar, Bourne, Jacoby Myers, they're good players, but they're wide receiver two and three types. You add Odell to that offense, you know, now you've got sort of that trickle-down effect I like to talk about where he's seeing CB1. Now Myers, instead of seeing CB1, is seeing CB2. Aguilar is now seeing CB3 instead of CB2. Like, you have that trickle-down effect where everybody benefits from what you do in terms of creating those matchups. And, you know, we'd like to say that this is a matchup-based league. Well, that would certainly help. Honestly, look, I mean, he's not going to like it. Detroit. Detroit. Like, did they they need injections of talent to the receiver? I I love Amon Ross St. Brown. Like, I, I think he's great. Quintus Cephas, I, I think he's good too. You add Odell to that, you start thinking, okay, well, maybe here with those three guys, T.J. Hawkinson, you're starting to put together DeAndre Swift out of the backfield, an offense that on paper looks pretty good. Obviously, you got to figure out the quarterback position, but Detroit has the money to do it. That's the other thing. Like, New England, New Orleans, like, they don't have – even the Green Bay, like you mentioned – yeah. They'd have to make some moves to get him in under the cap. A team like Detroit or even, say, Jacksonville that has money to spend and a young quarterback or a eventual new young quarterback to build around, that Never might be story. a good investment for them. Yeah, very true, very true. So I often hear this, the player's in decline. <laughs> you know, he's, you know, whether it's usually with an older running back or an older wide receiver or, or last week Travis Kelsey – yeah. And I I have to say when I hear that I think it's one of the biggest pieces of bullshit analysis in football media. And but there's times when it isn't, okay? I mean like there's nuance to it. So I understand that there are times when it really isn't, but sometimes I just think it's a it it exposes the people in terms of how they watch football. When they don't see you know, if they see a player overthinking or they see a player in a difficult scenario or he's not producing in the box score, next thing you know, it's he's on decline. You know, he's already he's already had too many carries at 24, you know, or they inject some sort of like rationale that they've heard growing up reading a sports page from a from a creative writer who also reports um, yeah. as opposed to a, re a reporter who analyzes the game, um, you know, and there aren't a lot of that. You know, there are some good ones coming up now in, the, in our digital age. Um, you know, I think, you know, when you talk about a Seth Galina, when you look at, there's a whole, the media landscape has basically siloed out to where you've got reporters, you've also got people who kind of, blend into those silos a bit but they can do the analysis game but before it used to just be like frank deford would be the yep. top of the list and i love <laughs> frank deford's writing he's an, an amazing writer but it was the thing that made sports so amazing was the magic and poetry of describing things even though they didn't get into the nitty-gritty of how it actually worked yep. listen reading some old journalists writing about the chicago bears and dick buckus on a muddy field they basically described it in a way where it just sounded like a barroom brawl with pure chaos that nobody understood what was going on. And it's like it was like listening to Kate. It was like listening to someone's account of cavemen evolving from the mud. I mean, right. and it was it's beautiful to read. But as a football analyst, I read that and go, these guys didn't know the half of what they were talking about. It was just the frontier days and yep. they were playing that up. So back to this. When is the player in decline um 
absolute bullshit to you and when may it not be? I mean, I, I think I can flash us back to an earlier discussion about Ben Roethlisberger. I mean, because yeah. Roethlisberger is, I, I think, a player that given what we've seen, you know, there are some reservations and there's a reason to be sort of be a little concerned about it. I, I think, you know, you, you describe the media landscape so well. I think the beauty of the DeFords, I mean, I grew up on the Boston Globe when they had a murderer's row, right? Bob Ryan, Peter Gammons, Lee Monville, like they just had so many great writers. And it was before the era of you could find any game you wanted to, you could see it for your eyes. It was before NFL game pass. It was before an NBA league pass or, you know, baseball's version of that, where you could see every game or you could watch condensed versions. So you could see it for yourself. You didn't have that back then. And so the, the ability of these writers to put into words, a visual that you may not have seen, or you maybe saw a quick sports center highlight of, it was fantastic. But now, you know, we, we've got people that, are showing you that that are cutting up games or like Nate Tice is doing Twitch streaming of stuff and other people. And so, you know, we can all see it now. So you don't need that description. Um, so the media landscape has sort of diverged a little bit, but none of us, none of us right now are in a situation where like we have the patience to let these play out. We right. don't live in a world where we have the patience to, like we tried to early with Roethlisberger say, he looks good now, but we need to sort of see it, right? We have to decide in the moment, is this player done? And it might be a day where he's just not feeling well. It might be a day where he's been dinged up for a couple of weeks and we don't quite know it. Or it might be a day where the opposing defensive coordinator has decided that no matter what happens, Travis Kelsey is not going to beat us. So we are going to do, like, say, what Bill Belichick did to him, like, the first time Mahomes played against Belichick, which was we're going to chip him, we're going to double him, and we're going to just take him away. Now, you might watch that game, or you might look in that box and say, man, Kelsey just can't get over He's Is he done? Have we seen the end of Travis Kelsey? Or maybe he's got three guys dealing with him on every single snap. And so, yeah, even, you know, Tony Gonzalez in his prime isn't getting open against that. And so, you know, this is my old man yelling at you all to get off of my lawn. We need to try to stay away from these debates that are decided in the moment using 280 characters. Like football is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Like these careers, they're marathons, not sprints. Like in some cases, like with Roethlisberger, yeah, you know, you might want to raise some questions about a player and say, okay, well, we know he's near the end of his career. Is he done or is does he still have enough left in the tank? Well, let's let it play out. Let's don't decide based on one game against, say, the Cincinnati Bengals and say he's washed or another one against, say, the, the Chicago Bears and say, look, he's still got it. Like, there's gray areas in all of this. And if we could try to describe the different shades of gray a little bit better than saying everything's black and white, I think we'll all be a little bit better off. Well, someone who has lots of gray areas, can I, you want to borrow my beard for your old man moment? You can have it. <laughs> I know I shouldn't have shared it for today because I do have, I do have the gray. It's getting in more and more. And, you know, we, we all try to fight against the, the passage of time and to keep that sun up in the sky a little bit longer. It's a never ended battle, but yeah, get off my lawn, kids. Yeah. What can I say? There you go. And I appreciate it. I mean, as someone who feels like the, I, I would rather like stand in the, I'd rather stand in, at the charge of the cavalry and unsheath my sword knowing that I'm probably going to die on it. But, like, it's like I would 
I would rather like preach patience, you know, yeah. rather than, I mean, than anything else. I see this. Look, I see this all the time with Jalen Hurts right now. I see it all the time with Jalen Hurts right now. Like, it, it did Jalen Hurts miss some throws Sunday against the Chargers that he probably should have hit? Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. He, but quarterbacks miss throws all the time. Like, ultimately, might Hurts be the quarterback that you win with and not because of? I think you can maybe say that that might be where he ends up. Doesn't mean that he's done. Doesn't mean that the Eagles will just move on from him. They might. But I don't think we can still decide that yet. But everybody's already ready to either say, look, he's done. He's he's clearly not the guy. Or maybe that he's still – I. we just need to, especially with the young quarterbacks, like practice a bit more patience. Yeah. Well, listen, let's move on since we've been – since we're given advice. Let's, let's go off the rails here. And we'll – you know, even though we are probably technically a good 25 to 30 years away from being old in real life – um, you know, where do you, you know, pick some advice, pick an advice topic and give it between either marriage, life in general, career advice. And no, you can't use, you can't use a specific players, um, or former players advice that you sent me, which was just absolutely golden. It was right out of the Mike Pence playbook. If you ask me. <laughs> Try to maintain composure here. Um, <laughs> Man, I mean, I, I could go in so many different directions of life, life, career, marriage. Um, you know, I, I've I've mentioned this before. I'll, I'm going to do two. I'm going to do two. Okay. I'll try to do them quickly. With marriage, I've mentioned this before. The idea of not taking the bait, and you know, this this is something that you know I kind of actually personally screwed up on this weekend. Um, but I usually, you know, and I read an article about it about successful marriages, successful partnerships, successful couples. And there, there are those moments, and I know I've talked about it before, where the partner says something and your initial instinct is to to snap back, to fight back. Like, you know, a comment about not doing the dishes, a comment about not cleaning up, and a comment about how dirty the bathroom looks or whatever. And your initial action might be, well, I'm always the one cleaning it, or I'm always the one emptying it, or I'm always the one that's that's washing the sinks and whatever. Just let those go. You know, those are like the proverbial 59-foot curveball. You might It might look great to you. As it's coming in, it might look to like a BP fastball that you can hit into the upper deck. But once you swing, you're going to look like a fool. And so just let those go. And the successful relationships are the ones where both partners just pass on those 59 foot curveballs. Now, there might be moments where, look, you got to stand up for yourself. You got to, like, you know, whatever. But for the majority of time, like, don't swing at those. So that's my quick bit of, of marriage advice this Saturday, you know. Order it. I am not comfortable. I do not like ordering at the drive-thru. And I screwed up the frosty order at Wendy's. <laughs> and, it, and I and I fought back in that moment. And it was a 59-foot curveball. Um, Career-wise, um, never be afraid to ask. Never be afraid to reach out. Never be afraid to ask for advice. Um, and... and I'm living proof, man. I'm here because I asked Matt if I could write for a summer project at the RSP years ago. I, and I thought, you know, maybe someday he'll let me do it. And he reached out almost immediately and said, you want to do it this summer? I mean, I, I'm here because of that. I, I'm here because people like Doug Farrar and people like Dan Hatman and others have, you know, given me a hand. And now, you know, I'm, I, I try to do that the best I can to to people that reach out to me, but never be afraid to like reach out because the worst thing that people can say to you is no. 
And people might say no. There will be a lot of, if it, whether it's the football media industry, whether it's whatever industry you're in, people might say no. Rejection is unfortunately a part of life. But for every 10 no's you get, you might get a pretty important yes along the way. Um, I was, I, I, it warmed my heart the other day when there, there was a, one of those Twitter like engagement farming tweets was somebody put out there, did you ever get a job because of Twitter? And Matty Brown. Um, who now does great work covering the Seahawks for SI and some other places, um, said, yeah. And he mentioned me as one of the people. That's um, great. Because Maddie wrote – he sent me years ago a piece, you know, just seeking advice on it. I was like, is, is this any good? And I read it, and similar to what you did for me, immediately responded, well, do you want to write it inside the pylon? Because it was good. It was really good. And Maddie has now done gone on and done some really good things. He's one of the smarter defensive minds. And if you want to learn run fits or coverages or anything, like find Maddie, Maddie F. Brown on Twitter. Um, but I, it was just nice that he remembered that. Um, you know, for every 10 people that might tell you no, you might get somebody like Matt with me that says, yeah. And, and so don't be afraid to reach out. You might get rejection along the way, but then that one person says, yeah. And that might be a, a yes that changes your life. Yeah. And I would, I would add, I think those are great pieces of advice and I'll, I'll add a couple of those and give a couple of my own. One is that I love the, uh, I love that thing of not taking no for an answer as a final answer to your career, like continue to ask questions. And sometimes the people giving you the no, it isn't personal. Don't take it personally. You may use it as fuel to put a chip on your shoulder long-term to keep you doing what you're doing. But understand that, <laughs> yeah. But do, but understand that, but understand that. Outside of you know Steve Smith being doing what he did, um, but uh, <laughs> you know, but besides that, you know, you and he's my hero, by the way. Um, <laughs> the the thing about this is that sometimes people are going to be too busy to be able to give you the the depth of response that you're hoping that what you're asking from them may be outside of their purview or their their time allotment to be actually present and give you the time that it needs to give you good feedback and they may know that and so they just they just say no you know and and they don't give you that a reason why so but i would always look at it as that is that they don't have the time and and you may feel like that stinks i wish that they did but you can find somebody else you know the don't swing at the pitches yeah i can certainly understand that one that's a that's a that's a very good one i threw away a what did i do this weekend i i my wife had some friends over and and did the unusual thing which is actually like cooked and did work in the kitchen which is like usually a danger to our kitchen and to our house um but she i was surprised to see that she only needed me to go to the grocery store to get one thing and didn't need any help with any of the things she did but she had left out like a meat and cheese plate and it had got it and we were up late and it it had gotten to the point where the meat was like getting plastic (laughs) because it was kind of cheap that what she got you know and the cheese was already rubbery and I threw it away. I threw it out because it, it just didn't look good and been out all day. And she got mad because she was like, she was hoping to have some of it. And apparently she has the stomach of a, you know, she has an anvil for a stomach, I guess, you know, or, or an iron stomach. So, you know, I'm like, okay, you know, but I just like, I'm sorry. And just left it at that, you, you know, but, uh, but I would say, 
the biggest advice I would give to people is forget marriage. If a lot of people who are on this aren't even married, I would say, even in a relationship, the at least for me, what I the the hard lesson I learned um, before I got married was understand that you can't save other people. Now that's a generalization. You can certainly help other people, and once you get into a committed relationship. Helping other people, helping your partner is very important. There are going to be times where maybe you are going to have to do things to be an emotional support system or a physical or physical support system. It could be all three. Um, and people go through crises in their life. And having someone there can be very helpful. But you, but you can't, but I don't think it's wise in most cases, though there are exceptions, though I haven't seen them take play out long term where you can save a drowning person by jumping into the water with them mm -hmm. and trying to, because they will attack you in their panic and drag you down with them. It's best yeah. to, it's best to be able to help from a point of detached safety. You know, it's like that whole analogy of when you do save a person's life, if you were to save a person's life in the, who's drowning in the water, the, the best advice they try and give is, throw them something to grab onto, you know, yeah. throw them something that doesn't involve grabbing you, you know, don't get in the water with them, do it from a distance so that you can pull them ashore and be from a place of strength to be able to help them. And if you're not in that place of strength and you're using that person's weakness as a reason for you to be there, then you are no stronger than they are at that point in their life. And so I would recommend the people that if you're, if you find that you're always getting into a relationship with someone that you need to quote unquote save or to be the the one who's got their stuff together, then really you're just afraid of focusing on the stuff that you need to get together. Yeah, um, and that's so I would definitely focus on that. And then I would just say the other one from a, a career advice is um, if you believe in what you do, um, and even though people may tell you it's not possible, unlikely, whatever it is, and you have a very specific goal and you've worked at it and you have something there, be patient and don't quit. You know, don't quit. Yeah. It's a, you know, there, there's an odd, crazy little poem I had as a, as a kid. Cause I'll just put it to you this way. Um, I had, I have one, I had, I had a good parent who was um, who lived far from me, um, but I had, I'll just put it, I didn't really have the emotional support system as a child that a lot of people did. And, I, and I've looked back in my life and I can tell you that, you know, my wife and I were having a discussion about like high school and we were talking, and, and elementary school, and we were talking about like those gifted kids programs that, that your school had. And I never got into any of those. And you had to get tested to get into those. And I, it always rubbed me the wrong way because even when I went into high school, I had a counselor who recommended I go in a non-academic track for high school. Hmm. And I was like really confused by that. And then I noticed that I didn't get into these other um, 
advanced. I got into advanced. I was in advanced academic classes, but I wasn't in any of the gifted programs that where you had to get tested in or in like the National Honor Society, something like that, despite having like a 3.75 GPA taking AP courses and being heavily involved in leadership and a number of things. And I always wondered about that. It kind of gave me a chip on my shoulder. But when I look back on it, when you get the year that I got tested, I went through some things that were very emotionally difficult. And I have a feeling that my IQ test was very low. And it was probably due to the things that were going on in my life. Even though I was a year ahead in reading level when I came to, well, I'll joke that Georgia's educational system was not all that great. And I was a year, I was a year and a half ahead, you know, in, you know, as a reader when I came down here and was in classes a year ahead. But that's the point is that, you know, you, I remember looking back and looking at those types of traumatic, whatever that I was going through, I realized, you know, in the recent, in recent months, just having a conversation, I was like, wow, you know, I was, I could have listened to other people saying, you're not, you're, you're not smart enough. We don't think that you're, we don't think that you're academically capable enough of doing certain things. Um, and realizing that sometimes it's circumstances. But the one thing that happened is I never saw myself as, as not smart enough. You know, I never saw myself as not capable enough. Um, and, and so when I found teachers who actually recognized that rather than just looking at a stat sheet, um, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> to tie all this in a little bit more, um, it was, it was helpful. And, and then that, sh and then I was able to shine in advance and, and grow from that. But I, I bring that up because I remember for whatever reason, one of the things that I did learn and get, I remember seeing this little poem called don't quit. And it's a, it's a corny little poem. We've all heard it, you know, yep. but I used to, I remember as a kid, I used to, I had cut that out and put it in my wallet. And whenever I, you know, whenever I had moments where I just felt like things weren't going well, I, I always had that and I always looked yeah. at that. And I think that for, for, and I had that for many years. I mean, I think I had it still as an adult for a while. And then I think I lost the wallet and then I lost that. And the thing that I was upset with more than anything wasn't losing the wallet and the credit cards. It was losing that little dog eared little poem that I, that I got when I was like maybe 10 or 11 years old. Um, so I would just say to people that, you know, if they're, you're looking at two people who have completely oddball careers compared to the rest of the world and came about it in a very roundabout way. Yep. Um, and I would say to you, and at a age in life where most people don't make a switch. Now, there are times you have to know when to quit. Um, and, and because you've made commitments because you shouldn't quit on other commitments. Right. You know, that's, that's another story. But if you don't, but if your commitments are set up and aligned in a way where you can really try at something you want to do, no matter how hard it may seem, I, I wouldn't give up even if other people are telling you, or maybe not telling you directly, but giving you indications that you're going to have some resistance, you know, yeah. and, and some resistance may be, five, six, seven, eight years. It may not just be, well, I'm going to try this for a year. Now I'm going to get right. some f initial feedback and it's not good feedback. 
And it's, and you know, you need to look at that as feedback, not signs that you're not good enough. You right. know, so that, those are my two pieces of advice. So to end this, what's the favorite natural attraction you've explored or visited in your life? Oh man. Um, I've talked before about the trip my family took when I was, I think seventh grade, we took three weeks. We drove Boston all the way out to Wyoming and then come back through like Colorado, Kansas, Arkansas, back up. Um, and I, I would, I would just say it's sort of at the outset, look, just seeing like the great plains, uh, like just seeing that where it's flat for like miles was for a kid from the Boston area that grew up in a, a entirely different world. Basically that was fascinating. But of course, look, Yellowstone, yeah. Old oh, Yellowstone's great. Like, like that was just absolutely incredible. Like I, in terms of like natural things, like the Grand Canyon, you know, I was really young when I saw that, you know, certainly mind blowing, but Yellowstone, Old Faithful, like just that entire park, like just seeing Buffalo Roman, like I, it literally felt like a different time, different era, different world. And, you know, I, I've often toyed with the idea of upon retirement, just driving just driving this country, like, like, like seeing, you know, Cody, Wyoming, um, which was the place we stayed at out in what the Wyoming area or like wall drug in South Dakota. Um, you know, the, the two things, and you know, they're not, they're man-made, but Mount Rushmore and then the crazy horse Memorial that they're building just down the street from, from Mount Rushmore, where it's a crazy horse mountain on a horse pointing in the, the his quote you know my my lands are where my dead lie buried um you know th that was incredible to see my and actually hold on a second let me show you this okay. we got a little project here all right uh, do like i see ever, a map ever since my, my parents and i were there my parents are still subscribed to the crazy horse memorial foundation oh, and so they get Wow. A little progress update on, on Crazy Horse. I mean, you could see, like, the face now. Wow. I mean, when I was there decades ago, it wasn't, you know, like that. Yeah. But, you know, that that's something that I know. I know this was a, you know, natural thing that we're talking about. This is man-made. But, you know, that's something that was just incredible to see. And, like, on the Crazy Horse statue, there will be a part under his arm where he's pointing. Then you get the horse's, the, the horse's neck. You could fit a two-story house in wow. that little area. That's how big this is. And so... It might not get completed in my lifetime, but, you know, something cool to see. So, yeah, I mean, that trip, you know, and I, I guess another one, um, the topography and the layout of Gettysburg. Um, obviously, Gettysburg, you know, monumental moment in our nation's history. I'm not going to get sort of down too deep into that, but Little Round Top, Big Round Top, and then Devil's Den, that little rock formation at the base of Little Round Top where most of the second day's fighting took place during the Battle of Gettysburg. And, you know, you've got troops in that cluster of rocks that many got injured, ear, eardrums ruptured because of the echo of rifle fire um, on, on that second day of battle. And so that was also something that, you know, I, I would mention. Love it. Love it. Um yeah, when you mention Kansas, I will say this though: if you want to, if you want to have the experience of driving through, like flat land with nothing but wind, and yeah. and and old timey gospel like dire apocalyptic, um, religious um, radio, 
that would be the place that you want to be for the next 17 hours because that's how long it's going to take you to traverse across Kansas in a car. Yeah. I've done that a few times in my life. It's the worst drive ever. But the rest of the Great Plains is unbelievable. And and I'm with you. Like I I drove around the country for a month with a, with a childhood best friend when we were in our early 20s and literally spent a month in a van going to all the national parks. And if you are young enough and fit enough to do it walk to the bottom of the grand canyon make that a make that an event to do like get prepared for it learn about phantom ranch down at the bottom stay at phantom ranch i've done that twice it is an unbelievable experience you feel like you're on a different planet or it just gives you an idea of understanding what how diverse our country is let alone our planet um so that's certainly on the list i love glacier lake um Glacier National Park, um, up Montana. Yeah. It is unbelievable. It's it's the going to the Sun Road is one of the more beautiful drives that you'll find, and there's a lot of good hiking experiences up there. Um, but probably the most mystical kind of moment that I ever had on that trip, and and I can just imagine for some reason Bloom asking me if I'm taking psilocybins, but um, <laughs> but really, you know, free of that type of experience. Um, was Crater Lake National Park in Oregon. Yeah. Um, it's literally a blown off volcano top that has, you know, this beautiful, just the be- most vivid shade of blue uh, that you could find of water pretty much anywhere due to the composite of like the, the ash and the and and where it and where it's located in the weather. And at night, what often happens is we got there in the evening and you're driving down this two-lane road up to the, the park and there's like these tall spruce trees that just basically, you know, buffer the road on each side. So you feel like you're driving towards the sun or, or the setting sun with these spruce trees that just just a big thick blanket of them on each side. And then you get to the, you get to the site and... You look in, you see this beautiful water, but you're high enough up in elevation that you'll have cloud cover. And oftentimes you'll see at night, the clouds gather and they'll gather around the edge of the crater. So you're, and you're part of that cloud cover and you're watching all the clouds gather up. It's like watching people fill into like a a stadium and they crowd around and then it envelops the the lake but it doesn't envelop the lake until it's gotten all the way around and then like i remember we we had to like find our way through the parking lot to like the lodge that was there and like when we got out after a couple of drinks and we were just going to sleep in the van at that point and we we it took us like 30 minutes to find the uh find the van because the fog was so thick you know, and the cloud cover was so thick at, at there, but it was just, just watching that moment um, for like a 30 minute period was, and, and just the beauty of it all was just fantastic. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, definitely get out, you know, and if, and if, you know, in 25 years, for some reason you see Mark and I driving around in a van, you know, come say hi, come say hi. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and some of you owe me a beer for not reading directions on the, on the RSP newsletter. <laughs> As you said, I'll be 
be, Mark and I will be making our rounds because I think I've got enough that we could at least eat for a few days. Yeah, so, just a couple right, of days. Just a couple of days. So thanks again, everyone. And I appreciate even those of you who owe me a beer or two because sometimes I don't write the newsletter all that well. But I appreciate the uh, appreciate your time. And, and you know, you can find Mark at Mark Schofield, TD Wire, you know, with Rachel Prevett, with, you know, the Pat's Pulpit, with Doug Ferrar's podcast, you know, all of that. And you can find me at Football Guys as well as the Rookie Scouting Portfolio. You guys have a fantabulous week.